So have you all recovered from daylight savings time? Have you made the adjustment yet? Glad to hear it. Of course, you guys, you know, you're the later service, so you guys had time to adjust. I have to confess that last Sunday, for the first time in my life, I missed church morning service because of daylight savings time. I missed it. I'm really glad I wasn't preaching. Um, <laughs> but I missed it. And then the kids were coming over for an early lunch. Didn't happen. And so thanks to the miracle of the internet, I was able to go on and to listen to the sermon a little bit later in the week, which was an awesome thing. Today, we're in Luke chapter 6 as we continue this fantastic study in the book of Luke. So this is the way it goes in our passage in Luke chapter 6. There are two things that happen in our passage today. First, there is the gathering on the plane. We'll call it the gathering on the plane. And second, there is the sermon on the plane. First comes the gathering, then comes the sermon. Those two things always go together. You have to connect those two things. When those two things are connected, that's when the full force of the gospel begins to work in our hearts and in our lives. So we're going to take a look at that this morning. And so let's read. We're going to backtrack just a little bit into the sermon from last Sunday, and we'll read in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus, he came down. He came down from the mountain where he'd been praying all night. He had appointed his apostles. It says he came down with them, and he stood on a level place. And some Bibles say it's a plain. So that's why we call it the plain, because it's a level place. So there's a mountain. They've come down, so maybe they're halfway down the mountain. I don't know, but there's, it's kind of level. It's sort of a plain out there. So get the scene in your mind. And it said, he stood in this level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. There's two things that happen in our passage today. The first is the gathering on the plane. Well, you just saw it. That's the gathering. I want you to picture in your mind that crowd that had gathered. It's an amazing scene. It's an amazing cross-section of people who were there. Jesus has been all night praying on top of the mountain. You know, as I listened to Adam's sermon this last week, my heart was so moved because I felt like he gave us a picture of Christ's heart for his church. He just, he took me up on the mountain with Jesus. And I pictured Jesus up on that mountain. And, you know, if you've been in Galilee, you may know the place where people think it was. And it's, it's a high mountain. It's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. But there's no electricity out there. And I'm telling you, it's dark. And Jesus is out there all night. He 
He's in the dark. Maybe he can see out across the lake some flickering fire, some fires out there, some ships maybe with a torch. But it's lonely up there. It's just Jesus. He's gone up there to pray all night. What's he praying for? He's praying for the church. He's praying for his people. He's praying for his community. He's about to appoint apostles out of his disciples. He's praying for them. Jesus cares about his church. And it's powerful. It moved my heart. But the thing that really blew my mind was when Adam said that this is the very first church service of God's new community in Christ. So I want you to picture that gathering, the gathering on the plain. Picture those people. This is the first church service. Who's in the crowd? You look around. You say, well, there's Peter and James and John. Who are they? Well, they're apostles now, but you know, it wasn't too long ago. They're just ordinary fishermen. They're not highly educated. They're not religious leaders. They have no authority in the culture. They have no power. They're in the crowd. You could look through that crowd. You find Levi there. Who is Levi? The hated tax collector. Hated, despised by people. Called by Jesus. There he is. Levi, the Bible says that when he followed Jesus, he threw a party for all of his sinful friends. And Jesus had a party with them. So I'm thinking there's a rough crowd there too. They're hanging out on the plain. Many people who came to be healed. I can't tell you if the leper from chapter 5 was in the crowd or not, but I can tell you there's someone just like him. Some outcast. Somebody with no friends. Somebody who's been excommunicated from life, so to speak. They're in the crowd. The paralytic whose sins were forgiven. Plenty of people who needed their sins forgiven. It's quite a crowd. Just picture the scene in your mind. Now, here's the next thing I want you to do. I want you to insert yourself into that picture. I want you to see yourself in that crowd. You know, Adam told us that this was the first church meeting of the new community of Christ. And then he told us that our meeting is just an extension of that meeting. It's just an extension of the same thing. Here we are today. And so here's what I did in my mind's eye, my imagination. I picture you, River West Church, out on that plane. There's Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He's front and center. All eyes are on Jesus. But they're mixed into that crowd. There's River West Church. There's all kinds of people that have come, people with different needs, people who are lonely, people who need to be healed, people who need to be forgiven, people from our own community are in that place with Jesus. And here's the way it works. Here's the first part of the story. Jesus, by his grace and his power and his love, has called each one into this new community. That's step one. That's part one. You know, when Adam was talking about Jesus praying, my mind went back to the early days of our church when we first began. And I've told the story of how I used to go and walk around my neighborhood every night and I prayed for the church. You know, Jesus, I know he was on the mountain. You know, Jesus has all power. But, you know, it was me like lowly pastor and I was just desperate and I was walking around praying every night. Jesus, will you gather a community? Will you send 
people to be a part of this, Lord? And the Lord began to bring people. And now, you know what I realized? I realized you are the answer to those prayers. You're the answer. You're here. God has created a community. God is doing amazing things in our midst. When I see the community of Christ, this first one in Luke chapter 6, and I see ordinary people called by the grace and power of Christ that God will use to change the world, I marvel. When I look at our church community and I see ordinary people that God has called by his grace and love and power, I realize the potential of what God can do in and through a group just like this. But that's not where the story ends. That's actually where the story just begins. Because there's two things that happen in our text. First is the gathering, but next comes the sermon. And those two things always have to go together. You can never disconnect those two things if you want to understand the gospel. So the sermon, let's read on and let's see about that. Now, this is called the Sermon on the Plain. It's going to start in chapter 6 and verse 20. We call it the Sermon on the Plain. Why is it called the Sermon on the Plain? Because Jesus came down the mountain and there was a level place. Some people call it a plain. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. Some of you are going, well, wait a minute. There's another sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's in Matthew's gospel. And it's longer it's three chapters long. It's kind of huge. And it's similar to this, but there are some differences. And so Bible scholars, they debate, and they say, well, why are there two sermons? And why is the Sermon on the Mount longer? Why is this shorter? Did Luke just shorten the sermon and insert it? Or was it actually, did Jesus give the sermon in a different place in a different time? So we have two sermons that sound similar. And you know what the answer is? I don't know and I don't care. It doesn't matter. What does it matter? <laughs> I don't need to figure that out. You know what I need to do? I need to listen. I want to hear what Jesus has to say. Listen with me to the sermon. Chapter 6, verse 20, and Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe unto you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now that's where our text ends for the sermon, but I have to read a little bit more because I just want you to 
get the context. Look at the next two verses. But I say to you who hear, are you listening? To those who are actually listening, see, Jesus wants us to hear this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Do you notice how intense things get pretty quickly in the Sermon on the Plain? I mean, it just goes to full intensity right away. Are you listening? Okay, tune in. This thing is intense, and he doesn't lighten up. So I want to add one just to get the, the full feel of this. If you continue on to chapter 6 and verse 46... 47, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And, you know, we're going to go through all this. We'll study all this. I just want you to get a feel for it. Jesus, he goes through these blessings and woes, which are pretty intense. He follows that up with these mind-numbing pronouncements that you go, who could even do that? Who can do good to people who hate them and abuse them? Like, why would you even say that, Jesus? It sounds crazy, right? He says, are you listening? And then at the end he says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? So evidently we're not just supposed to listen. There's actually something for us to do here. All right, so now we're getting the intensity of the sermon, and that's important. I want you to go back to chapter 6 and verse 20 where it starts, and I want you to take note of something that's very important. It says in 620, Jesus lifted up his eyes on who? On his disciples. This is an interpretive key to the sermon. So if you want to understand, well, what's really going on here? This thing is so intense. So you've got to pay attention. Interpretive key. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. I love the picture of Jesus with his eye on us. I actually love this picture. And as I think about it, I think it's, it's sort of been the story of the whole gospel. Jesus has been watching his disciples. Jesus passes along the sea and he sees Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. They're in a boat, mending their nets. And Jesus, he has his eye on them. He's watching them. He calls them to follow. The Bible says in Luke 5, Jesus was passing by tax booth, and he saw Levi in the tax booth. He has an eye on him. Jesus. Some men were bringing the paralytic on a mat, bringing him in front of Jesus. They actually had to lower him down through the roof, and the Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. See, Jesus sees us. It's one of the great truths of the gospel. Jesus has his eye on you. The Bible says he knows your name, calls you by name. Jesus has his eye on you. Jesus is on the mountain praying. He's praying all night long. Who's he praying for? He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for his church. He's praying for this community that is forming. He has his eye on them, and he's choosing certain ones to be apostles because he has his eye. When I think of Jesus having his eye on me, I always have this memory 
of when I was a young father and I had small children. And we'd go to someone's house for the potluck, and it was a place where they had a swimming pool, but no gate. And my children did not know how to swim. And you know what? My eye was on them. Every single second, I was watching them. People would try to have conversation. You know, they'd talk to me. I'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? What's that? Oh, it's I got it. Uh, you were saying? Sorry. Right. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that what you do? See, Lord Jesus, he has his eye on us. And I like that. He, his eye is on you to comfort you, to protect you, to guide you, to encourage you. His eye is on you for all those reasons, and I love that. But now, now his eye is on his disciples for something else. It's another reason his eye is on them. And so Jesus lifts up his eyes on his disciples now, and his eye is on them not to comfort, not to protect, but to challenge. He lifts up his eyes upon them to challenge them. Why would he do that? Because he knows what they can be. He knows what they should be. He knows what they will be. He knows what he's called them to and who he's making them. So now he looks upon them with eyes of challenge to them. I'm not so sure about this part. I like the first part. <laughs> I like his eye upon me, protecting, guiding, calling, forgiving, healing, and pulling me into that community. I love that. But now Jesus takes that community and his eye is on them to shape them, to shape them into a different kind of community. And so the lesson that we learn is this, and I have a slide for it so that I can drill it into our minds. The Sermon on the Plain is Christ's word of challenge for his followers to live a different kind of life in this broken world. Now, there's two things that always go together. There's the gathering on the plane. It's pulling everyone together, and it's exciting. It's the first church service, and Jesus is there, and people are getting healed, and it's awesome. And then comes the sermon on the plane. And the sermon is to challenge those people in that gathering so that they might begin to become different kinds of people and live a different kind of life in this broken world. And so what's the deal with these blessings and woes? Did you notice how right out of the gate, he starts with blessings and woes. There's four blessings four woes. Sermon on the Mount, those of you who are at the head of your class, you know, Sermon on the Mount doesn't have any woes. It's just blessing, 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 blessing. But Luke, he has blessings and woes, and it sort of startles us. And there's four and four. He uses extreme language. It's the language of comparison and contrast in order to make a point. So we have Blessed are the poor. In fact, what's weird is like all of the blessings are things we wouldn't expect. It, it seems odd to say. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are empty. Blessed are those who are weeping. 
and blessed are those who are rejects. So that kind of messes with your thinking. You're like, excuse me? And then there's the four corresponding. He says, woe. Woe unto the rich. Woe unto the full. Woe unto those who are laughing in their happiness. Woe unto those who have status, who have status in the culture. And you say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. What are you doing? What is it about these blessings and woes? When Jesus pronounces the blessings and woes of the sermon, he does it to challenge their thinking and shape their values. Got a slide for this. I want to drill it into our minds. Jesus challenges our thinking and he shapes or reshapes our values. And that's exactly what's going on out of the gate in this sermon. These words are designed to stir up controversy in our heart. Because right away you go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Wait, what are you saying? Why are you saying that? Life doesn't work like that. Jesus says, yeah, it is. That's how it works. These words are designed to challenge our thinking, our expectations about how life is supposed to work. I don't know about you, but whenever the themes of wealth and poverty come up, I find myself sort of conflicted by that. And I actually think it's a universal kind of experience. I think any time the theme of wealth or poverty comes up, we don't know what to do with it. We're kind of like, well, wait a minute now. What do you mean by wealth? And what do you mean by poverty? And, and where do I fit? And, so, and it, it immediately it sort of gets us going. And you know what Jesus did right out of the gate? He stirred up controversy in their hearts. That's what he's doing today. Are you listening? You need to listen. Because this is what Jesus is doing. I want to share with you a memory in my life that's forever seared into my mind. I'll never be able to get it out of my mind. And uh, it often revisits me. In 1999, my father leased a yacht. I have a photo of it. Um, that was a yacht. And it, it's called the Jamaica Bay. And he leased the yacht so that he could tool around on the Amalfi Coast in Italy for a week. And um, this is a rare thing that, that happened. It was highly unusual. And he called me and he asked if Maureen, my wife, and I would like to go. And I said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> of course. Thank you for the invite. We'd love to go, right? So we show up to the yacht in the Amalfi Coast, 185 feet, six family members, 11 crew members, and proceed to tool around the Mediterranean on this yacht. Now, on the third deck, on the top deck, you can't see it exactly there, but there's a jacuzzi. So that jacuzzi is up on the top deck. So one night, we're in Naples Bay, and it was too rough out there or something. We just came in for some reason. So we're in Naples Bay, and it's night, it's dark. And my wife and I are like, well, we're going up to the jacuzzi. So we go up to the jacuzzi, 
and we're there, um, and it's kind of amazing. Like, really? It's like, this is bizarre. I've left my world, and now I'm the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and we're up there, and, you know, they're bringing us, you know, frosted drinks and jumbo shrimp, and it's amazing, and we're there, and so, and then I heard a voice, and I looked over to the left, and, and about 30 yards away, past the dock and a little space of water, there's a jetty there, and this man has walked out on this jetty, and he's dressed in rags, and he's crying out in Italian. Of course, I can't understand the language, but I know what he's saying, right? He has his hands out like this. His voice is agonized, and he's pleading, and, you know, he wants help. Now, there's a fence with barbed wire on top of it to keep him from jumping into the water and swimming over to the boat. And so there I am in the jacuzzi. My moment has been shattered. And I'm, I'm looking at this guy, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? Like, what is going on here? And the disparity between where I was on that yacht and this man who was asking for help was so great that it just seared itself into my mind. And so the words of Christ came to me, blessed are the poor, but woe unto the rich. That happens when you know the Bible. <laughs> it's like, like what? why now? Why do I have to think of this now? No. And so, you know, I'm like, well, wait a minute. How do I get out of this fix, you know? And so I thought, well, that's, this is a no-brainer. This is an easy one. So my response in my heart was, well, this is easy. I'm not rich. My dad is rich. I'm not rich. I didn't lease this boat. My dad did, you know? This is his gig. I didn't even want to come here. I don't even know why I'm here. I got tricked into this, you know? <laughs> so here's what I did. On another boat trip, different boat, um, different place, uh, I was with my dad, and we're out uh, in, in an island in Mexico, like a private island, and we're only there, this boat, similar kind of a deal. And we're out on this boat, and so I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, um, I want to ask you a question. Is it weird being wealthy? Like, you know, do people treat you differently? Um, is it hard to make friendships when you're wealthy? And his response to me, this is absolutely serious, his response was, he sort of got a, a stern look on his face, and he said, you need to understand something. I am not wealthy. I know people who are wealthy, but I am not wealthy. And I thought, is there a disconnect? Like, <laughs> look around. <laughs> like, look at where we are. Look at what we're doing. Are you kidding? Like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And in that moment, I realized something, and that is that we always define wealth by looking upward. We always define wealth by the person above us. There's always somebody wealthier than us, you see. I'm not wealthy, but I know someone who is. I could show you a picture of him or 
They're my friend. We have lunch occasionally, or I've heard about them, or I've read about them, but I'm not wealthy. And I came away from there thinking, oh, you know, I think I have a problem because the truth is we're all wealthy in the U.S. I'm wealthy. Traveling in third world countries and and seeing people who are truly poor, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, hang on. You say, I'm not wealthy, my dad's wealthy, you know. Well, I hate to break it to me, (laughs) but I'm wealthy. Like we're all wealthy in some way by comparison with the rest of the world. And that's true of you too. So what's the point? What are we supposed to do with all this is, is the next question. So do, I hope I've stirred you up a little bit, you know. And I just want to say, you know, there's the people who come to the church here, it's so funny to me the way that people are. Do you know that when we moved from the West Hills to Lake Oswego, there were people that threatened to leave the church. They're like, we're leaving the church. We're not going to go with those high rollers and LO, you know. People are wealthy out there. They're driving those fancy cars. We'll never go. And then sometimes people come to the church and they actually come up to me and they say, I'm uncomfortable, Pastor, because there's too many nice cars in the parking lot. And I'm thinking, that's only because you've never been to Newport Beach. (laughs) Because this looks pretty shoddy to me. (laughs) I'm like, I don't think so, you know. So we always are going to compare, you know, something. It's like, I'm not going to, there's too many nice cars, and I'm not a person like that, okay? Well, I could show you 15 or 20 people who would like to have your car. So let's stop playing those games. What's the point in all of this? That's the question. And the point is that Jesus wants to challenge our thinking and reshape our values. How? In what way? To reflect the truth of the gospel and the reality of his kingdom. You see, this isn't just about wealth or poverty. The goal of the Christian life isn't poverty, weeping, and rejection. Those aren't the three application points. (laughs) You know, I want you to leave here, and your goal is poverty, weeping, and rejection. Okay, so the Bible never glorifies poverty. That's not the point of this. So what is the point? The point is that Christ is challenging our thinking. He's reshaping our values to reflect the truth of the gospel and the reality of the kingdom of God. So look again at Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's an interpretive key. Yours is the kingdom of God. Oh, the kingdom. I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, because Jesus began his ministry by saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. Well, when did that arrive? Jesus says, when I got here because I'm the king. Any place Jesus is, King Jesus, that's where his kingdom is. So he says, yours is the kingdom of God. This is about more than just wealth or poverty. It is about that. And we're going to hear a lot about wealth and poverty in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, it's everywhere in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to learn about money and about values and about all kinds of things like that. 
But the first thing we have to see is it's not just about wealth or poverty or where you are on the economic scale. It's first of all about the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus and your relationship with him. Take a look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. And who's that? It's Jesus. Jesus, the son of man, on account of me. The very first question that we need to ask ourselves when we hear the sermon on the plane is not, hey, am I the rich or am I the poor? The very first question we need to ask is, what is my relationship to Jesus Christ? What's my relationship with Jesus? How do you see him? He sees you. He sees you. He calls you. He offers the grace of God, the gospel of Christ to you. He sees you. He's looking at you. He's calling you by name. But how do you see him? He's gathered this, this crowd, this community onto the plane, and there he stands, and everyone's looking at him, and he's the king. He's Christ the king. What's your relationship to Christ the king? Here's something important. The goal of the Christian life is to love, trust, and serve Jesus as your highest value. So here's our goal. The goal is in poverty, weeping, and rejection. That might, that might happen, but that's not the goal. The goal is to love, trust, and serve Jesus as your highest value. And so as we pay attention to the Bible, we begin to realize that these categories of poverty and wealth actually speak at a deeper level than we at first thought, than we at first realized. Who are the poor? In the Bible, the poor are the humble and lowly ones who trust God because he's their only hope. It's not just that they're poor, it's that they're poor and they're looking to God in faith because that's kind of their only option to do that. Now, I could take you through verse after verse in the Bible to, to make the connection between poverty and trust, which is what the Bible does. Let me just show you a couple, just so you'll know I'm not making this up. Psalm 9 and verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 70 and verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. You starting to get the vibe? Okay, that's like throughout all of Scripture. All, it, the humble, lowly, poor who basically trust God and they have nothing else to depend on. When we go to third world countries, it's what we see. We see people who have nothing on an economic level, but they're rich in faith. That's amazing. It's, it's kind of challenging in a way, to be honest with you. Challenge. Then we get on a plane and we come back to Portland and we get off the plane and you know what we find? People who have everything and no faith. People who have everything and they complain and they accuse God and they say, I don't believe in the existence of God. How could God allow those people in Africa to suffer so much? And the people in Africa are going, we love God and we're trusting him. How could God allow those people in America to be so corrupt and godless? <laughs> Who's got it right? You see, 
It's the humble, lowly, poor who are trusting in God. But then who are the rich? The rich are not just those who are wealthy, but it's those who are prideful and self-sufficient. They pursue security and status as their highest value in life. It's not just wealth. There's an attitude that goes with it that's key in the Bible. What's your highest value? Is it security and status in life? You know, we heard this last week about college entrance scams. Maybe you read about this, the college entrance scams. Celebrities, millionaires, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars to cheat so that their children can get access and entry into elite colleges. You know about this? Yeah. And you know what we all do? We're like, oh, that's terrible. That's horrible. And it is. <laughs> it is. I can guarantee you that people who are doing that, their highest value in life is not to love, trust, and serve Jesus. It's not. It just can't be. It can't be. Why? I can tell by their values. What is the height of value to them? It is security and status for themselves and for their offspring. That's the high value. So it's not just about, you know, I'll get them into this college because they'll probably get a better job when they get out. It's not really about that. It's more like I'll get them into this college because you get status points for having your name associated with Stanford, Yale, Harvard. My kid went there. I get status points. They get status points. They meet other people who get a lot of social credit. And now we're in the power club, right? Isn't that the way that it is? And how much will you pay for that? Millions of dollars. Where's the headquarters? Newport Beach. How did I know that? It's like somehow it just made perfect sense. <laughs> okay. Jesus has come to call a community and then to shape a community to live by a different set of values. This is why the gospel begins the way that it does. The Gospel of Luke begins the way that it does for this very reason. And these themes will find travel from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 24. These themes will be developed. Let me show you Luke chapter 1. It's what we call in theology land the great reversal. It is the principle of gospel reversal. And you'll find it in the Song of Mary. So Mary, this young girl who is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and, and the angel reveals to her what's going on and she's overwhelmed and she sings a song, a song of praise. And in the song, in the song, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find rich and poor, arrogant and humble. You're going to find the power of God at work in amazing ways, because these are the themes of the gospel. Take a look at it in Luke chapter 1, in verse 46. Here's what Mary said. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, the word humble means lowly. 
Mary is humble and lowly. She's poor. When they gave their offering, it was on the sliding scale. It was the, the poverty offering. Okay, so they're, they're dirt poor. They're humble. They're lowly. Did you notice the word joy? Did you see that in the text? My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Humble, lowly, trusting, rejoicing. Mary is the prototype of this humble, lowly person who's blessed because of the kingdom. Christ the king is coming. She's filled overflowing with joy even though she's broke. That, see, that's the picture. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is Christ the king. Amazing. From now on, behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And what has he done? He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate and filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Sounds like the great reversal to me, doesn't it? He turns the world on its head. He turns the value system of the world upside down. It's from page one of the Gospel of Luke. The proud in the imagination of their heart. See, these are people with power. They're people with wealth. They're people with status. But it's not just that. There's something about the heart. Something about the heart. Now, as we travel through Luke, we'll find out that there are snares that come with wealth. It's not about just about wealth, but there is a truth that money complicates things and actually makes it more difficult for us to live the values of Christ in the kingdom. So we're going to learn about that as we travel through. But I love this great reversal that happens. So if I go back now, we're going to end with this in Luke chapter 6. And we've been through the blessings and the woes. And so I'm going to go again to verse 27 of chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And my question is, who in the world could do that? You know, it sounds like a bit of religious platitude, and it's nice that Jesus said that, but if you really think about it, wait, wait a minute, who in the world could actually do that? Who could pull that off? And the answer is, only someone who's thinking and values have been reshaped by the gospel. The presence of Jesus, the king in their life, and the hope of the kingdom of Christ that will come. So the question I have for you is, what do you believe today? What do you believe about Jesus and his kingdom? Because it'll radically change the way that you think and behave. What do you think about Jesus? Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus, the king, is present with us right here and right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Not perfectly, not always as visibly as I'd like to see it, but Jesus is alive and Jesus is present and the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here in the midst of the body of Christ. I believe that today. 
What do I believe about the kingdom? I believe that it is coming. I believe that someday Christ the king will return in glory and he will create a new heavens and a new earth and another kingdom. And I believe that. Now, if you believe those two things, how will it change the way that you think and behave? Like if you don't believe that, then I'm saying going for the hot, just go for the hot tub. <laughs> Jamaica Bay, I've got the number. You can rent it. You go out there, spend it all, sell the house. Go get up in the hot tub, sit up there. And, and then Jesus will say, well, you know, you, there you go. You got it. You, you had it. You know, you only got one life to live. Go for the gusto. And, and that's it. You're in the hot tub. And you got your reward. You see what I'm saying? What do you believe about Jesus and his kingdom? That's the key to the whole thing. And if you have a relationship with Jesus and you believe there's a kingdom that is coming... It'll change the way that you behave. There was a man who just a few days ago in New Zealand walked into a series of mosques and started shooting and killed 50 people, 50 people. That's not because his value system was to love, trust, and serve Jesus, right? Now, there's some set of values that drove that. It wasn't a senseless act. You hear this phrase all the time. It was another senseless act of violence. But wait a minute. It wasn't senseless to the person who did it. It made perfect sense to that person. It made total sense. Why? Because in the grid of their distorted thinking and their value system, the highest values is what they were operating out of. And they were not the values of Jesus. No way. So part of the path of Christian discipleship is to ask Jesus, come and... and Put your eye on me, refine my values, change my thinking, and bring it into alignment with your kingdom values, Lord. That's the journey we're on. Isn't it good to know that you're not alone on that journey? You're not alone. Remember Jesus on the mountain praying for his disciples before he picked up and he gathered them? Okay. Well, Jesus is still praying. The Bible says he's our high heavenly priest. He's interceding right now for you. Jesus has an eye on you right now. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into your life. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit will give you a new heart. Begin to change and transform your heart, your thinking, your values. You're not alone to do this. Jesus is already working in your life. You know, that's why I sit in the jacuzzi on the Jamaica Bay and there's a poor guy out there and I can't stand it. You know, why is that? What's the Holy Spirit? (laughs) The Holy Spirit's going, hey, dude, what's going on here? You know, you better think this through. Well, that's the Lord. It does that. You're not on your own. Are you listening to, the, to God's word and to his spirit in your heart? And you're not alone because you have a community. You have the Christian community right here, brothers and sisters. We're all on this journey together. We're here to help each other to grow and to be shaped and to become more like Jesus. And as we travel through the gospel of Luke, that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm excited about it. Let's have the worship team come up. I want to say a prayer for us right now. Lord, I thank you for the wisdom of your word. I thank you, Lord, for a challenge that you put in front of us, Lord, that kind of rattles us. Thank you for that, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you have your eye upon us. You see not only our needs, our sorrows, but, Lord, you also see who you want us to become. And you're watching over that process. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us, Lord, because we are rich. 
We live in a land of plenty. We live in a land of lies, in a land of false values. We live in a culture that exalts the pursuit of wealth and status and celebrity and comfort and security above all things. And Lord, we, we hear that song. It's hard to turn away from it. Would you help us, Lord? We, would, we want to hear the voice of Christ. We want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, Lord, drawing us. Fill us with the joy of Jesus, the joy of your kingdom, Lord. Make us different people in a different community in a hurting world, we ask. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.